I want you to know that Billy Graham called me last night and told me that uh, he was sorry that he was going to be preaching at the same time we were. And I told him that I would take the crumbs that fell from his table. <laughs> and you're wonderful <laughs> to be here today. Uh, I wanted to, uh, I'm going to talk very personally today. You know, this has been nearly six months since I've preached. And if I sound like a beginner, it's because I am. Uh, I wanted to call your attention to two or three things that have happened to me during this long trying illness that I've been through and then go into our lesson for today. First of all, in the Christian year, what is called the Christian year, we look at festivals. And festivals like Advent is the coming of the Son of God into the world. That we remember especially at Christmas. Good Friday, we remember the atonement. Easter Sunday, of course, we remember the resurrection. Last Sunday is Ascension, when Jesus goes to his Father. And today, of course, is Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is the coming of the Holy Spirit in the fulfillment of Christ's promise. And this day, uh, Penta means five. Pentagon is a five-sided building. Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. And uh, uh, seven times seven is 49. It's a, a Sabbath of weeks, brings you to the 50th day, which is the, uh, the Jews celebrated as the giving of the law of God. Uh, last night I called Frank, our middle son who teaches at B Divinity School out in Birmingham, and I asked him to enlighten me a little bit on the history of Pentecost because that's an area of study that he's very good at. And he told me that he happened to be in Jerusalem studying one year at Pentecost. And he said, I will never forget it. Because he said there was huge crowds of people, Jews who had come from all over the world to be back in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And uh, he said there are rich Jewish people who live in New York City or in Buenos Aires or in some other place in the world. And he said they will come for Passover and stay in their apartment through Pentecost. And he said, I went down to the Wailing Wall, to that which remains of the temple there. And he said it was like a babble of tongues. You could hear all these people from all over the world praying in different tongues. And he said it made the meaning of Pentecost uh, come back to me in a different way. Because the Holy Spirit came on that first Pentecost that you read about in the book of Acts. We read that there was a gift of communication that takes place. That each heard in his own tongue the gracious works of God. Now we remember also that there is not only that which is audible, we hear the word of God. But that which is visible, which is seen, there were cloven tongues of fire. Now what does that mean? Uh, the Jews used to celebrate the sun. Frank said he went out there at sunrise. And he said just when the rays of the sun began to fall down on that crowd, you could hear this great shout in all different languages going up, praising God for the gift of the law. 
uh, when the sun falls upon mountain tops, one peak lights up, the other peak lights up, the other peak lights up, the other peak lights up. Here, the gracious Holy Spirit comes. These were assembled all in accord in one place in the upper room. Here is a sound, a mysterious sound of wind. When you want something to, that sounds eerie, you say, ooh, like the wind. When Jesus was trying to explain to Nicodemus the mystery and the miracle of the new birth, he said, listen, listen to the wind, Nicodemus. You can't tell where the wind is coming from and where it's going to go. And so it is with the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit's sound comes at Pentecost. And then the tongues of fire, where each begins to speak, and is understood in the language of his own country. And when you think about that, Jesus is exalted and uplifted in this crowd. Peter, in preaching there that day, goes back to the prophet Joel, and he cites the prophet Joel is the oldest man who has served as moderator of the General Assembly. Doc Spence, who's always very careful, said, let me think about it. And then later, when we talked, Dr. Bell said, uh, Dr. Spence said, Dr. Bell is the oldest man who has ever been moderator of the Presbyterian Church U.S. Dr. Bell was 79. I called Dr. Bell and I said, you're going to be preaching on Pentecost Sunday in Fort Worth. And I said, Peter on Pentecost Day said, your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And Dr. Bell said, I've got it. And so when Dr. Bell stood up in Fort Worth, with great unction, I listened to a tape recording of the address. He quoted the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, and in these last days, God declares that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Here we have sons and daughters of our church, precious young people who know and love the Lord, and some of us qualify as being old. I am told that I am the oldest man ever to serve as moderator, and I have a dream, an old man's dream of a transformed, revitalized church, a church which will once more emphasize those things of eternal import which were central at the first Pentecost. Well, our church is a far cry from doing that, and we need to be praying for our church, and we need to be witnessing and to be faithful to the work of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to go from 20 years ago back to 43 years ago. Dr. Bell said, your old men shall dream dreams. And I'm going to tell you something that I've never told in public before in any public gathering as long as I've been in the ministry, and I'll explain why. Wrestled when I was 20 with the thought of going into the ministry. Lyndon Johnson had offered an appointment to West Point or to Annapolis. There were other things that were mentioned to me at the time, and I got no peace. I was, 
I was being worked on by the Holy Spirit because I'd heard a man preach about discipleship. And he said that Jesus Christ had to have everything and that you had to give yourself without any reservation to the Lordship of Christ. And I remember hearing the man preach and I thought that's the biggest fanatic I've ever heard. I don't want to hear that because I wanted to keep my life for myself. But the more I listened to him when he read those terrifying, horrible words of Jesus that said, unless you hate your father, mother, sister, brother, and your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. And I thought, how do you explain that away? What does it mean? I was not at all comfortable. But let me tell you, discipleship only begins when you're willing to face the pain of following Jesus. And yesterday afternoon, I got a telephone call from a wonderful elect lady who was in her car, called me on a car phone from someplace, I think, in South Carolina. And uh, she said to me, you spoke with me about 60 days ago, and I asked you about permission regarding marrying a person who really wasn't eligible to be married under the strict rule of scripture. And you didn't qualify your answer to me. You told me exactly what scripture said. And you prayed for me and she said, I was so mad at you, I didn't know what to do. But she said, I know that you were right now and I did obey the Lord. And I know that when you pain, are willing to face the pain and do what Jesus tells you to do, that he'll work things out of glory. Well, that's real discipleship. It's not the 99 easy things that we do that please the Lord. It's the one hardest thing that has to be presented to him. Well, I did not want to give my life over to the Lordship of Christ in the sense that I would be a preacher. I thought the only thing worse than a preacher would be to be an undertaker. And I don't, I don't want anything to do with it. And I, I said, look, God, if you'll let me alone, I'll be a lawyer. I'll make a lot of money. And I won't just tithe, I'll give you half of it. But you can't do that with the Lord. And I kept praying, and I got to reading in the Old Testament. I'd gone off to college for my third year in college. And I hitchhiked out to West Texas State University. I remember how rich I felt with two $20 bills in my watch pocket on my blue jeans when I was hitchhiking on a road going 400 miles away to go to West Texas State. And I lived in the home of Admiral James Otto Richardson's sister, Mary Richardson, and uh, she had taught at the school there for 50 years. And Mother Moss had given me a place to live, and she was the greatest Christian I ever knew. And she, uh, uh, was so wonderful and I remember going into that home that little I've got a picture of it in my um, house here it's a, a picture that some artist an adobe a green adobe cottage that she called rest cottage I came there and lived in what she called the prophet's chamber it was usually where preachers stayed who were there and I can remember reading about Gideon and how Gideon was trying to determine what the will of God was. And he put the fleece out and the fleece was wet and the ground was dry all the way around it. And then 
he said, well, I don't know if I got this right, Lord. You, you make the, the fleece dry and the ground wet all the way around it. And the Lord uh, listened to his pitiful request and did it. And I prayed and I knelt down my, by my bed. And I'd already signed up for my classes in school. I was going to be a lawyer determined that that was what I was going to do. And I said, Lord, i got to know whether I've really got to be a preacher or not. You know I don't want to be a preacher. But I will even be a preacher if you make it plain to me tonight. And I said, I've never dreamed about Jesus. And if you want me in the ministry, then tonight, let me dream about him. And I swear to you, I didn't have any more sense than to say that. I'll be a preacher. I went sound asleep. And I awakened at some hour that I don't know. And I didn't look at my watch, but I awakened conscious of the fact that someone was in the room. I sat bolt upright in the bed. And I saw Jesus just for a moment come toward of my bed. He looked right at me. The garment that he was wearing rustled. I couldn't describe at all uh, in detail uh, his facial appearance. It was similar to the pictures that I had seen. All I can remember is a horrible fear that fell over me. I was terribly afraid. I tried to speak and my jaws were locked. I couldn't speak. I tried to move and I couldn't move. I was frozen in fear. He did not say one word. He just looked at me. And I knew by the look that he was saying to me, why do you ask for something like this? And he was gone. I could not move. I tried to get out of bed and finally when the first emotion that I'm conscious of, I began to weep. Now this is 43 years ago. That changed my entire life. I, from that room, when I was able to move, I moved. I went to the, the door of Mother Moss's bedroom and I knocked on the door and she said, what is it, honey? And I said, may I come in? And she said, yes. And I went into her room. She was almost 80. And she reached her hand up and took my hand. And she said, what's the matter? Your, your hand is as cold as ice. And she said, you're shaking. You're trembling. And I told her what had happened. And she said to kneel down by her bed. And I knelt down by her bed. And she put her hand over on me. And she prayed for me. And she said, I don't think you ought to talk about this. Because Paul had an experience that he did not tell anyone about for 14 years. And so I haven't told this in any kind of public meeting. I've told it to some friends privately and to some people that I thought were struggling with the will of God. And it's not that I think I'm better than anyone else because I know I'm not. But I not was pleased to shake me, but I'm not proud of that. I don't want another experience like it. 
I ask no dream, no prophet's ecstasy, no sudden rending of the veil of clay, no angel visitant, no opening sky, but take the dimness of my heart away. I want him to, I wondered why, why, why in Acts 2 does it say your old men, like Dr. Bell, will dream dreams. Your young men, like I was 20 and now I'm 63, your young men shall see visions. I remember asking one of the tutors that I had over in Scotland, J.G.S.S. Thompson, if he would explain to me the difference between a vision and a dream. And I told him this experience that had happened to me. And he said, you had a vision. And I tried to find out what visions have over the years. This week, I looked in that InterVarsity commentary, the New Bible Dictionary, and I looked up dreams, and I read it very carefully. And I looked up visions and read it very carefully. And do you know who wrote those two articles, the one on dreams and the one on visions in the New Bible Dictionary? J.T.S.S. Thompson. He wrote that in 1962. I asked him that question in 1960. When Mother Moss told me to go back and pray and ask the Lord if he had anything further to say to me. And he didn't. But the next morning, I wrote a letter to my pastor, to the girl that I thought I was going to marry, to the people that I knew, and I said, God has called me into the ministry. And I have never turned back. I wrote that day. Now, I don't know what it means to anyone else, but I know what it meant to me. It changed my entire life. It does not mean that other people have to have that experience. I don't recommend that. It's all I know is what happened, and I'm telling it. I wouldn't dare stand up here and tell a lie about something like that. But I know that it shook me. Now then, three years after that event, that's 43 years ago, 40 years ago. Dorothy and I were married, and we left to go to Italy. One of our friends, Dr. Elio Enard, was a professor at a Waldensian seminary. And he invited us to come there and live in his home and to read in the Waldensian library and to preach in the Waldensian church. And so we did that. I remember we sold our car and took the money from it and uh, bought a ticket to Rome. And um, on the way to Rome, we left Asheville, we went to Charleston, West Virginia, we uh, went on to Pittsburgh where there was an Italian community. And I came out of the hotel and uh, on a Saturday night, this same time of the year, time, I walked down the street and I saw a little Italian church. And I thought, well, since I'm going to Italy, I ought to go in this, see what this church is. I cannot remember the name of it. But I remember these Italians were ebullient. They were very joyful and they were praising the Lord. They were singing and they were so happy. They were uh, working class people. And I looked in the stone that was on the corner of the church and carved into the granite cornerstone it were the words, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? 
And it came that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? The next morning, I went to a, a big Presbyterian church where the elders wore those striped morning coats. It was a huge thing with a porte that comes up in a uh, an usher that came and opened the doors and I went in this enormous luxurious elegant church Hugh Thompson Kerr was the minister of that church a very famous man and I remember looking at that uh, congregation and I wondered if we passed out little cards and we wrote on the card did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe what would people in this church write down and then I've often wondered if we passed out cards, did you receive? Now we ask people, have you received Christ as your Savior? Did you know that there is nothing in the Bible that says that you receive in those words? That says, receive Christ as your Savior. That phrase, now I know the sense of it's there, but that phrase in there. But here, we are told, did you receive the Holy Spirit? To, what is it to receive the Holy Spirit? Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It means that he becomes Lord of your life. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard whether there be a Holy Spirit. He said unto what then were you baptized? And they said unto him, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12. Now, I do not believe that this means that uh, we are to... Uh, have the gift of tongues as any normative Christian experience, although that may be the gift that comes to us. But I do know that we must be aware of the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives and that that simply has to be. And what's the sense of what I'm trying to say? What happens to this group of people? Paul begins to teach in Ephesus. These people who had a faith that something was wrong with, that was incomplete. You know, we're always, I'm always saying, give as much of yourself as you know how to give to as much of Jesus as you understand. Well, that's what these people had done. They had given as much of themselves as they knew how to give to as much of Jesus as they could understand. I had done that. And the Lord gave me more. Cornelius did that, and the Lord gave him more. So what is the message? Is that if your faith is stagnant and dull, the joy of the Holy Spirit can come into your life if you are willing to let him be Lord. And the fruits of the Holy Spirit should be prompted in your life. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance. These things should be fruits in our spirit in our lives. The joy should be there, the sense of God's guidance 
should be there. These truths are meant to be taught to us on Pentecost Sunday, a yielding to the Holy Spirit. And what's the biggest thing the Holy Spirit can do? It's to convince us that Jesus is Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no man can say Jesus is Lord, that is, can say Jesus is Lord and really mean it, except by the Holy Spirit. And the greatest work that the Holy Spirit will ever do in your life or in my life is not to enable us to speak in tongues, or not to enable us to perform a miracle of healing, although those things may and can come. But the greatest work that the Holy Spirit can do in our life is to enable us to say that Jesus is Lord and really and truly mean it. Because that means that everything we have and are comes under the Lordship of Christ and then we have his great promise, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. When Richard and I first started talking about this, it was back close to Easter, and I wanted very much to be here on Easter Sunday. And I studied carefully John chapter 20 and what happened to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene spoke a lot to me this year at Easter. And that Easter Sunday, I wanted to come up here. He was brokenhearted when Jesus was put to death. She went there to the tomb, according to John chapter 20. And she stood there. That means the, that she went to the tomb and stayed there weeping. And do you remember that Jesus came... Peter and John came, but Peter and John looked in and left when they saw that the grave clothes were there. They just left. They were puzzled by it, but they left. But Mary Magdalene did not leave. She stayed there. When you have a friend who is real close to you, you don't want to leave that friend, and it's a terrible, painful experience when they're taken from you. I talked to a lady this morning whose husband died not long ago. And she wept with me on the phone as we talked about him for a few moments. Because the pain is still there, she still misses him so much. Well, Mary went to Jesus' tomb and she wept. And then Jesus came and he spoke her name. It was very personal. Mary. It was very personal for her. She immediately re replied Rabboni and she fell at his feet and clutched him with her arms. And Jesus said, cease clinging to me. The King James has the, the words, touch me not. Now I was trying to teach this to Al, our Russian friend. And it, it's not like Jesus had some disease and, and if you touch him, you contaminate him before he goes to heaven. It's don't cling to me in this way because I'm not going to be revealed to you anymore in this way. I have not yet ascended to my Father. But when I do ascend to my Father, he had made a promise.
that unless I go away, the Spirit cannot come. But in a way, I'll send him, and he will be like me. And you will always be able to have me with you. And that's the lesson to me of the Holy Spirit. He's come into our lives to remind us of Jesus, to teach us of his presence, and to speak to us. Mary had to learn that, that she couldn't just cling to his presence. I had to learn that you couldn't just ask for some spectacular vision, but that you had to be obedient to him as the scriptures present him to you. And when I got into seminary and I found people that did not believe the Bible, it did not shake my faith. They couldn't. And maybe the Lord was trying to prepare me for that. And when I've been through pain that's been terribly hard to bear and bewildering, I had some person who asked me if I'd lost my faith in God after the been through. I have lost a lot of faith in doctors. But <laughs> I have not lost any faith in God. Uh, it didn't uh, make it pleasant. Now then, i got to close. And I know I've rambled on, but I just wanted to relate these personal things this morning. I can tell you about the ministry of the Holy Spirit maybe best. And uh, Dorothy and I, I don't know when it was, several weeks ago, we got that. Uh, it's an old black and white video that you can get at the library called The Miracle Worker. And it's the story of Helen Keller. You remember Helen Keller who was born in Tuscumbia, Alabama? and who, because of some terrible fever, had her ability to hear and her ability to see taken away from her. She, had the, she could smell and she could touch, but she was blind and she could not hear. And she was in a terrible world. Would you like to be blind and unable to hear? And this little child was like a caged animal, full of rage, fighting, scratching, hitting out, not able to communicate. And her father, the newspaper publisher in Tuscumbia, sent to Boston and brought a teacher by the name of Ann Sullivan, who came to Tuscumbia, Alabama, and lived in the home and took this little girl into a cabin. And she began to teach her. One day at the pump, when they were pumping water in a March, cold March day, the water splashed over on this blind child's hand. And she moved her hand quickly because she could feel the cold water. And Ann Sullivan grabbed her hand and put it against her lip and mouthed the word, water. And then the little girl tried to gurgle out the sound, wow. She broke that barrier and communicated with her. She went to one of the finest schools in the East, Helen Keller did, and won a Bachelor of Arts degree with honors and astonished the whole world with her learning. I was working for Billy Graham as a researcher when Helen Keller died. And one of my jobs was to read the Washington Post. 
And there was a long obituary in the Washington Post, and I cut it out. Because in that obituary, there was a tribute that Helen Keller made to her teacher, Ann Sullivan. She said, all the best of me belongs to her. There is not a talent or an inspiration or a joy in me that has not been awakened by her loving touch. Now this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a parable to us. To awaken us to see when we do something wrong and not to give us any peace until we make it right. He is to show my friend who had to make that painful decision the other day what the right course was and not to be willing to give in to a wrong course. And so Paul said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, we haven't even heard if there be a Holy Spirit. Well, you've heard it today. There is a Holy Spirit. He is here. Many of you were baptized into his name, and all of you were that are baptized. But have you been aware of his ministry and teaching to you? When Paul had laid his hands on, him, the, on them, the Holy Spirit came. Now, we don't get a repeat of Pentecost in the same sense that Pentecost occurred in the second chapter of Acts. But there is a sense in which some semblance of that comes to us. Uh, when we yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry that I went so long, but we'll be talking more about this later on. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, look carefully at the words of the hymn 354. The Son of God goes forth to war, and you'll read about the coming of the Holy Spirit, whom we worship and glorify as God. Look at this, a glorious band, the chosen few on whom the Spirit came. Twelve valiant saints, their hope they knew, and mocked the cross and flame. They met the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane. They bowed their necks, the death to feel, who follows in their train. Now we get to follow in that train. See this red cloth? Richard went up to Maryland not long ago to a minister's conference and they handed out a brochure from a, a presbytery here in North Carolina that was sent to nominating committees that would nominate a pastor for vacant churches and it said red flags that you want to look for are people who went to Wheaton College or Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary or Fuller Seminary, or who have an undue emphasis upon the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a red flag, all right. That's it. It's the red flag that shows that we do honor and reverence the Holy Spirit as God. God will not share his glory with another. And we want the Holy Spirit to be oh, moving in our lives and prompting what we should do and think and be. Let's sing the hymn number 354, 354. If you've never accepted Christ, you may. 